Welcome to the WMKT Week in Review. Welcome back to the WMKT Special Edition Interviews. I am Nick Rudy. We are with retired Lieutenant General Jack Bergman, who represents Michigan's 1st Congressional District. So uh, you represent all of uh, the Upper Peninsula and what is considered Northern Michigan, even down uh, a bit into mid-Michigan. It's around 44% of Michigan's landmass, second largest congressional district east of the Rockies. It's a lot of ground to cover. What are the uh, pros and cons to representing such a large area? Well, you know, that number, that 44% was uh, accurate until we gained the four counties. Sure. Uh, so now it's it's gone up to forty eight percent. But the uh, the point is the the pro is two things. Number one, the people, and number two, the beautiful scenery we have. Regardless of when I'm driving around the district, whether it's water, woods, you know, pasture land, small towns, uh, you know, whatever it happens to be. The challenge is I can only drive so fast, <laughs> right. and to to take the time necessary to get from, let's say, Petoskey, in your case, uh, normally if I had a day now in Petoskey area, I'd probably have something in Charlevoix, maybe something in Harbor Springs, down to Traverse City, maybe, maybe sneak over to, you know, Gaylord, depending on the day, but I can't get, uh, like many of my representatives that, uh, or fellow representatives, uh, that they can drive from one end of their district to the other in 30 minutes. Sure. So the, the challenge is being face to face with our constituents. But here's one of the beauties of social media and how we do things now is that people in the district can see exactly where I am. So if I'm in Petoskey, they don't expect me to be in Marquette. Sure. So that's, you know, that's kind of people are now I, I, I've found in the last you know five plus years that I've been a member of Congress that that people watch where I am. And, and they, they appreciate the fact that I travel long distances just to look at my bald eyeball. Yeah, absolutely. That I, I definitely can see that. Yeah, social media has been so helpful. So it's so great to be able to follow people's campaigns through, through social media, different people's campaigns as well, even in the primaries. When you're a local representative, people expect you to help them and their community. Such a, It is such a large area. Have you ever ran into trouble balancing the needs of constituents that are uh, nearly on opposite ends of the state? Uh, not really, because, you know, one of the the, the things that are that is common all across the district is people want to have um, the freedom to live their lives. That's, you know, as they want to raise their families, they want to have a job that uh, they can, uh, you know, again, sustain, sustain a, uh, a lifestyle such as, as they've chosen. So with, with rare exception where somebody is really hard one way on a subject or hard the other way on a subject, I look at it this way as a chance to listen to everybody. Uh, and in that way, I can I can then begin to the dialogue with someone who who may have a, a viewpoint different than mine. But I'm usually going to ask a lot of questions to see what drives their viewpoint. And in some kind some cases, I I necessarily won't be able to offer agreement, but at least I can offer perspective so so uh, they can maybe begin to understand where where I'm coming from, and I'm trying to understand where they're coming from. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. As a retired lieutenant general from the Marine Corps, how does your experience in the military help you in your political career? 
Well, again, we don't in the Marine Corps service service to our country. So the idea of service, whether and to be a servant leader, is something I've I learned a long time ago. As a quite honestly, as a young boy and a Boy Scout. But um, what's enabled me, I think, to be a good representative uh, in Congress uh, for my constituents and to work with my, my colleagues, both Democrat and Republican in D.C., is that I've had the opportunity to, to lead organizations, big and small, with a very, very, very serious mission. That's, you know, defense of our, our freedoms uh, when it comes to... Uh, you know, protecting people and, and uh, uh, entities around, around the globe. So uh, my experience as a Marine, I'm mission focused. I'm going to listen to my, if you will, my staff, my advisors. And then when it's time to make a decision, I make the decision having, having thought about it. And we did that in the military. I did that as an airline pilot, you know, you, depending on, uh, you know, how old you are. You, if Northwest Airlines was around when you were flying, I could have been your pilot. But I'm, I'm, I'm able to make decisions based on my experience, but I listen to others first. And that has enabled me to, uh, I believe, uh, be a, an effective member of Congress right on the front end, coming in here as a freshman five years ago. Of course. I'm actually going to pull a question that I had for later in this interview, uh, just because you mentioned uh, protecting people around the globe. Uh, just with your military background, I think it's appropriate to ask you uh, this question. What do you think is in store for Ukraine? Uh, do you think an invasion is likely? I know just the news broke that uh, in the last 24 hours that Putin's ordered troops into those eastern breakaway regions. Uh, do you think an invasion is likely? Do you think the U.S. and its allies should support the Ukraine? or? Well, let's put it this way. Uh, I do not support uh, sending troops. Uh, now, you know, the, the Ukrainians don't want American troops on their soil. They're, they're fighters. I've, I've worked with them historically over time, back when I was in uniform. What they need is the resources. Um, the, uh, the Biden administration waited way too long to begin uh, sending them the appropriate arms necessary to defend themselves. And that's why I believe we support the Ukrainians. And one of the ways we support the Ukrainians is to not only sanction the Russian government, but basically sanction those oligarchs around Putin who really, if he's not listening, if his inner circle begins to see how, how tightly the U.S. has sanctioned their business interests around the world, that will most probably get his attention. Perfect. UP uh, resident Nick Baumgartner won gold at the Olympics in the snowboarding mixed relay. Nick, as you know, is from Iron River, which is only a 30-minute drive from where you live in Watersmeet. Uh, I understood you took part of the proceedings welcoming him, welcoming him home as a local hero. Can you speak to what his accomplishments meant for that small town? Well, yeah, it was it was an absolutely spectacular event. You know, he he flew in. They had a parade that you know came up through, you know, through the town up to the high school, and and he entered the gym that was just jam packed with I'll just say three, if not four, generations of folks. Number one, he brought the pride of his accomplishment to the whole community because he is a ho he is a hometown boy. Everybody knows him. And I, I think what was very special about it is that number one, if he'd have won that gold medal when he was 18 or 20, 
it probably wouldn't have meant as much to him as it did at the age of 40 after trying and failing and trying and failing and then finally succeeding. That shows that shows perseverance. That sends a signal, especially to the young boys and girls who are there in that audience or anybody else for that matter, that, hey, if, if at first, I grew up with the saying, my mother used to say, if, you, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. But Nick was so so honest in, in how he talked about um, the experience and how he cried when he failed just a few days earlier. Uh, but that didn't make him quit. It made him try even harder. I saw him there. I saw him a couple of nights later and up in Marquette. Uh, He's been making the circuit. He was in Waters Meet at the school yesterday uh, talking to the kids. So he's, number one, good on him. He earned it. Number two, now he's he's bringing it home to the UP and being that that ambassador of of goodwill and the example of how-to for all the young kids and old kids alike, so to speak. Yeah, it was a great story, great story about uh, perseverance. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with Representative Bergman right after these messages. Glenn Beck. I want to play something from Kid Rock. The elites have no idea where people actually live and what they're feeling. But if you listen to the lyrics, it is all about big tech, big government, all of the people that you sense. Something's not right. What you're sensing is the Great Reset. And they really don't think that people are onto them. Your friends may not know what it's called, but they've heard Build Back Better, but they don't know what that is. But they sense something isn't right. The Glenn Beck Program on WMKT. Hi, it's Nick Rudy from Triple Talk WMKT. Looking for reliable local news? You'll find it here on WMKT. Join me weekday mornings from 6 to noon for sports scores, up-to-date weather forecasts, and local news that matters most for Petoskey, Charlevoix, Traverse City, and all of Northern Michigan. Bringing you the information that matters most. Triple Talk, 1023 and 1033 FM and 1270 AM WMKT. Welcome back to the WMKT special edition interviews. We're with Representative Jack Bergman. I want to talk to you about the voting trends of your district. Uh, I did a little bit of research and I was blown away upon further inspection that Democrats held the seat from 1933 to 2010 um, when your predecessor, uh, the late Dan Beneshek, won it in 2010 with a 50.1% of the vote. Narrowly won re-election by half a percent, and then in each ensuing election, Republicans gap slightly increased each time by about 2% until your last win in 2020 where you blew your opponent out of the water. Is there any insight that you have into why it was such a Democratic stronghold in a usually rural Republican Michigan uh, for years, and then why there was a sudden sudden shift from nearly 80 years of Democrats uh, to you winning by 25% last election? Because I would imagine maybe TC and Marquette have a little bit to do with that, but is there any insight that you have? Well, you know, my my dad's parents uh, came to the came to the United States in the 1880s. My grandpa was an iron miner over in Ironwood, and all my family were conservative Democrats, heavy on the conservative. But they were Democrats, and I think that is true to a small extent today. But those people who voted Democrat their entire life, uh, especially starting in 2016, 
said, no, I'm conservative. And then therefore they voted for me. They voted for Donald Trump. They, you know, they, they voted conservative. So I, I believe that especially the upper peninsula and northern lower that I represent are people who, who uh, have the right values that, that basically mean smaller government, more personal choice, more individual freedom. And they're not seeing that from the current Democrat Party that's in charge, you know, out in D.C. It's it's spend more, it's uh, waste more, in, and it's clamp down on your individual freedom. So I, the people in my district look at look at it through the lens of, you know, um, what what have I always done? And that means family values, family faith, and freedom. And uh, that's what the Republican Party uh, stands for now, and the Democrats don't so much. So it's more of the parties have shifted rather than the uh, the beliefs of the people. Yeah, the beliefs. I mean, the beliefs are. Uh, I I don't see a shift in the beliefs. Uh, and I spend a lot of time in schools. I spend a lot of time in, you know, VFWs and American legions and just you know places. Uh, my wife doesn't like to go shopping with me anymore at Myers or Walmart because I'll go in for, I'll go in for bread and milk, and 45 minutes later I come out because I had four conversations, you know, in there. She said, but the point is, uh, the the people in our district, they want to be heard. And, and they want to be left alone to the extent that they can live their lives. Of course. Since you represent the area that includes the Mackinac Bridge, I want to get your insight into Line 5. Do you have a solution that you like, such as the tunnel that you support? Are you in favor of removing Line 5 from the straits? Well, number one, um, any, you know, think about, I was an airline pilot for, you know, 25 plus years thereabouts. Um, safety first, safety second, safety third. That pipeline has been in the straits since the 1950s. Number one, if it's there, you know, keep it safe, first of all. And if it's, if it's not safe, shut it down. But there's been no indication, uh, given the safety procedures, that it is unsafe. And, the, and yes, the, the solution to ensure safety and to ensure the flow of, of uh, liquids and gases through it is to build the tunnel. You know, it's, a, it's, an, it's a, an agreement between the state of Michigan and Enbridge, with the exception of FIMSA, which is the federal regulatory social, uh, you know, group body. Um, the federal government really doesn't have an involvement in this, but I believe, number one, the tunnel should be built, keep it safe, keep it working, because if the, some of the proposals I've seen where, okay, well, we're going to add rail cars or we're going to add fuel trucks, holy cow, you, uh, you decrease your margin of safety exponentially by putting those fluids in trucks or on rail. We all see it, you know, more often than we'd like on the evening news where there's been a, a rail car go off, a, a truck roll over, what it happens to be. And I would suggest to you, after they build that tunnel for for the uh, the pipeline, the next tunnel they should build should be uh, to uh, bring the largest vehicle that's on the road, whatever that might be, uh, under the Straits of Mackinac, because the bottom line is if the governor of the state had to move goods and services in an emergency situation between peninsulas and the Mackinac Bridge is down for whatever reason, high winds, um, you know, truck jackknifed, uh, you know, whatever it happens to be, 
and that bridge is closed. The governor has no secondary plan to move goods and services between peninsulas uh, if there was an emergency. So I believe the second tunnel should be built as soon as the first tunnel's done. And now that's where the federal government gets involved because we could use, like we did in the Mackinac Bridge, we could use interstate money uh, to build that as part of a really focused infrastructure uh, project. Sure. I, I haven't heard of the, uh, the the second tunnel. Is that something that's newly discussed, or has that kind of always been an option on the table with building the, the first one? Actually, actually, when we started the discussion on Line 5 five years ago, about after I got here to Congress, I've been here about a year, and I started to really look at it in detail as where, if any, I could play a role, positive role. And I said, well, heck. So I started talking about this in public about four years ago. But the, you know, folks, uh, folks who just want to focus on, on the, the pipeline aren't really willing to listen to what would be good infrastructure. An example, why did it take us 30 plus years to get the Sioux Locks finally funded and, you know, being built? That was because, you know, myself and a couple others, uh, got involved, uh, the president got involved, uh, the former president, uh, a few years ago, and now we've got, we've got all, the, all the money uh, required to build that new lock, and, uh, you know, they're moving dirt and building things up there. So uh, we just, we've had too many politicians for too long who have actually not thought, I think, in depth about what the real needs of the district are. Sure. So you mentioned that you were you had a hand involved with getting the uh, money for the Sioux Locks. Do you have any uh, involvement with the getting more uh, icebreakers for the uh, Michigan Lakes? Working on that right now. In fact, a week ago I was aboard the icebreaker. Uh, we went out of St. Ignace and uh, we were out for about three and a half hours and they showed me. They were, the Coast Guard was disappointed because this year the ice isn't thick enough to really show how they can stand that icebreaker up on the ice and let it fall down. Uh, they were, you know, it was kind of kind of like uh, they were, were disappointed they couldn't show me the whole uh, capability of the icebreaker. But, the, but yes, because we need... Uh, we need more icebreakers, not only for the Great Lakes, but we're going to need larger icebreakers for the Arctic. That that is a fact going forward. So, but I am very very involved with the um, getting more icebreakers to the Great Lakes. Let's take one more quick break. We'll be right back with Representative Jack Bergman from Michigan's first congressional district. buys cars. Heard the news? Your used vehicle has never been worth more. And Mo Money Maurice is ready to buy. At Brown Motors of Petoskey, Brown buys cars. Your used car, truck, or SUV could be worth 40, even 50% more than a year ago. And nobody pays you more than Brown Motors used car manager, Mo Money Maurice. Brown buys cars. Get your used vehicle off the side of the road, out of the garage or pole barn, and get it sold with Brown Motors of Petoskey and Mo Money Maurice. Drive it onto the lot. Get paid on the spot today at Brown Motors of Petoskey. Brown buys cars. That's right. Drive onto the lot. Get paid on the spot with Mo Money Maurice at the dealership giving you top dollar for your used vehicle. Just ask for Maurice at Brown Motors of Petoskey. Brown buys cars with Mo Money Maurice. 
Welcome back to the WMKT Special Edition Interviews. We are with Representative Jack Bergman. What, in your opinion, is the greatest problem facing Northern Michigan? Well, the greatest problem, I'll, I'll cut it two ways. Number one, on the infrastructure side, not every place has um, fiber, high-speed broadband, whatever you want to call it, rural broadband. And we saw that a couple of years ago when the governor, you know, crazily shut us down for a long period of time. It's one thing to shut down for two weeks, which is what we heard in March of whatever that was, 2020. Um, but we need, um, you know, broadband. Uh, that's on the infrastructure side. Sure. On the on the personal side, we need now that we let's assume we have broadband. Let's assume we with the change in how people work from home and different things. Um, we need to have the kind of uh, economy opportunities uh, in our district where people can move their families, raise their kids in a small town, and still you know still earn their living largely by working on the internet at home. So you know the priority of of making sure we have a an environment where families can come and be part of a community and thrive. I mean, that, those are those are what Northern Michigan needs, and, and those are my goals uh, to achieve uh, going there. You might have already answered this question uh, two questions ago, but what is the legislation you're working on currently that you're most proud of? Well, I think, uh, you know, I, I sit on Veterans Affairs and Armed Services, so I guess what I'm most proud of is the veterans legislation that we continue to increase services, uh, uh, primarily health care of all kinds, whether it be physical health, mental health, for veterans. We passed the Mission Act. We've, we've added to it to ensure that, that the veterans have access to quality care uh, in their communities, or in some cases, telehealth. So my, my, my legislation, big picture-wise, that I'm working on all pretty much involves veterans and infrastructure with broadband. Sure. COVID is uh, winding down. Many people are still upset about how it was handled, especially in your district. Uh, many people in your district dislike Anthony Fauci. I wanted to see what you think should be done about him. There was a resolution in Congress, I believe, that's been shut down, the Fire Fauci Pledge. But would you be in favor of stripping him of his salary or seeing him removed from his position? You know, it's it's not about Fauci. Uh, should he be, should his performance be reviewed and evaluated? Absolutely. But think about this: the CDC, Center for Disease Control, which pretty much he heads up, was founded, I believe, in the 1940s for very specific reasons. Where I believe the role of the federal government is, and through this administration or any administration for that matter, but we haven't seen it, is to redirect the CDC so that it's focusing its resources on what it's supposed to, supposed to be doing, its core mission, rather than doing all sorts of different experiments and spending time and resources that are not part of its um, original mission. In the military, we call that mission creep where left uh, untended over time, any, uh, any unit can get off its intended mission if, if uh, they're not well-led. And I think we need more leadership. I know we need more leadership, especially at the, at the White House level, because the, the White House is the executive branch. 
and they control all the departments. So this is not a this is not the role of Congress or the House or the Senate. This is strictly the executive branch, and they need to make sure that the the bureaucratic government in Washington D.C. Um, is actually doing its job, and and uh, we've got a ways to go on that. Well, that's a great transition. Those you're answering these questions too well because you're kind of answering my next ones. Beyond refocusing the bureaucracy. Uh, CDC primarily, as you mentioned, on the tax that they were assigned. How do you, how do you, how does the legislators and Congress, how do they restrict bureaucrats from gaining the power that they had and shutting the country down again if this were to happen again, something like this were to happen again? Well, again, the Congress, when you think about what the Congress has, it has the power of the purse. It's stated right in the Constitution. Uh, one of my disappointments since being here is that we as a Congress, as a House, I'm not going to talk about the Senate because I don't work over there. That's their business. Uh, but as the House, we haven't had the stomach to take on the budget because it's no different than if you're a family and I'm going to make up a number. If, you're, if your income is $5,000 a month and you're spending $6,000 a month, where does that extra thousand come from? Well, in the family's case, you either borrow it on your credit card or get a loan from somebody, but you still have to pay it back. In the government's case, because we've been spending, I mean, my God, we're going close to 30 trillion in debt now. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been spending on our grandkids' inheritance. And that's just, number one, it's fiscally wrong, but it's morally wrong to continue that path. So where the House of Representatives can really begin to be part of a solution is to get its fiscal house in order and begin to cut back, which is tough. But, you know, there's we as individuals know that uh, when we're responsible for our, our lives and our outcomes, that we have to control our spending. And the, gov- the government uh, pretty much, uh, and pardon my analogy here, but they've been on crack when it comes to spending sure. uh, other people's money. No, that's totally fair. You, I guess I'll just ask you a broader question about the national debt. I mean, as you mentioned, it's approaching $30 trillion very quickly. Um, and if spending continues the way it has in the past year, we'll hit that mark pretty quickly. Do you have a solution to beyond just cutting back spending and getting the national debt under control? Because, I mean, I think a lot of people would argue that just restricting some spending on a couple of big budget items is probably not going to be enough to actually start paying off the debt. I, I do have some solutions. Um, I've been fiscally responsible my entire life, whether it be as a business owner, as an individual. And there are times where I've had to, um, in my personal or business life, reduce expenditures um and get a fiscal plan together i i I will suggest to you that uh the plan that i have and others of fiscal responsibility the first steps towards it will occur only when we take back the house in january of 2023 and we can control the discussion we as the republicans i mean control the discussion on budget and and legislation because right now to put anything out there people who either don't understand it or or who want to uh, denigrate it um you know uh, don't uh, don't show your don't show your game plan to the other folks uh if you don't if you think they're gonna 
you know, take it down a bad road. But I can tell anybody, and I'll sit, sit in a room with them and, and talk about where I believe we can uh, uh, cut our fiscal spending wisely. Uh, and part of that, a big part of that is in the bureaucracy of the federal government. You know, Ronald Reagan said the closest thing to eternal life is a federal program. So when you think about that, if you when you have a federal program, now you have to build a bureaucracy to administrate it. We've got we've got programs that uh, have been um, in some cases never used uh, to good you know to good ends, but we also have some that are still in play that we fund that are you know outdated. Sure. So you mentioned that one of the biggest ways you can make an improvement is when the Republicans take back the uh, the House, maybe the Senate. Um, you'll obviously still be operating under uh, President Joe Biden, but the Republicans had the majority in Congress under a Democratic president and under a Republican president, yet spending continued to go up. How is it going to be different this time? Well, I guess when we um, look, I was there for the four. I started when uh, Donald Trump came in as president and I saw too much party line infighting and, and fighting against the president. Think about before Donald Trump got there, or after he, right after he got there, we had the resist movement all around the country. And I could, in fact, I can remember being um, um, uh, booed at a, at a town hall event not too far from Petoskey by people who didn't come there to listen, but you came there to disrupt. So I would suggest to you, um, We've learned a lot in the last couple of years, but uh, at least in, when I say couple of years, my time here. So again, I've got, uh, I believe there are good moderate Democrats and Republicans who have the right idea in mind. They're just looking for good leadership. And we haven't had that in the House of Representatives for the last three years. Sure. Um, this, pardon me if this is a slightly ignorant question. I did a little bit of research. I didn't say anything. So you'll be up for re-election this year. Have you have you filed for re-election yet, or have you made any plans? Well, oh yeah, I'm, I mean I'm running. Okay. We we uh, we have to collect your signatures every two years, and we're in the process of doing that. The filing date is sometime around the middle of April. Okay. So we'll we'll file we'll file. Yeah, that's uh, you know that's there's no no question about that. So I'm definitely running again, and we'll go through all the procedures. And you know we, since we had uh, um, a district change uh for example some of the because i no longer have uh manistee county um and and the north half of mason county any signatures that we had gathered there can't be counted towards my filing because they're not part of the district and all that so the short answer is we're we're right on track to file and get all the paperwork done and run our campaign absolutely so it's two-year term limits obviously um just wanted to get your opinion on that do you feel like you're it's good to have such term limits so you're always responsible and being held accountable by the, the people or is that like you're just kind of always stressed and in campaign mode so you can never really completely focus on the tasks at hand well um number one i'm really not i'm not the kind of guy that stresses out so i'm not stressed i just utilize you know my 24 hours a day to the to the fullest whether it be when it's time to campaign or whether it's time to legislate or you know depending on what it is but i believe that um it is time for Congress to consider uh, the constitutional amendment changing the, the length of the term in the House of Representatives from two years to four years uh, and to um, term limit members of Congress, not the Senate. 
Remember, the president's already term limited. But it's time to have the discussion about that because all of my colleagues are in the same boat. I mean, you're spending, if you're spending time campaigning for re-election, you're not spending time um, representing your constituents. So just do the math. Sure. Well, those are pretty much the end of the questions I had. I, I always leave it up at the end. Uh, if you have if uh, anything you'd like to say or a message for the people of northern Michigan, uh, feel free. Yeah, pretty simple. I've got the greatest staff in the world. Our office below the bridge is in Petoskey. If anybody has any issues, uh, believe it or not, most of the constituent calls, we get involved in improper payment from the federal government. Uh, and uh, the point is, my staff works every day, all day, to help help all of the constituents of the 1st District, not just those who voted a certain way or whatever. So please reach out. Uh, we're here to serve you, and we go and get it done every day. So thank you so much. Representative Jack Bergman, thank you so much for being on today. Thank you. Thank you.